You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. Today is the 14th of January, 2019, and I'm happy to have on once again with uh, with us here on the program, Jerry Doherty, who you will no doubt know by now is the co-author with Jim McGregor of Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War, a book which obviously I can't recommend highly enough and which was one of the key sources that was used in the creation of my World War I conspiracy documentary. If you haven't seen it yet, why not? Please go to CorbettReport.com slash WWI for that documentary in its textual, audio, and visual formats, completely free for download. I hope you will use it as a resource. And while you're there, please do note that it does rely heavily on this resource, which again, you will be familiar with by now, Hidden History. But today, uh, we're going to be blessed with the presence of Jerry Doherty to discuss the other book, which he has co-authored with Jim McGregor on the subject of the First World War, Prolonging the uh, the Agony, How the Anglo-American Establishment Deliberately Extended War by Three and a Half Years, a provocative title, a provocative subject, um, one that should really raise the ire of all of the people, I'm sure, who are listening to this conversation, regardless of your own family history with regard to the war, just the very concept itself should be sickening to our core. And uh, it's because of that, I think, at least partially, that this history has been so effectively obscured for so long, because not many people do want to take a look at the hard truths that are presented in this very well-documented, very hefty tome. Jerry Doherty, thank you for joining us once again on the program. It's a pleasure to have you back on. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's get into the subject matter of this book, which is vast. Uh, the I, I think people get the sense of what the thesis of this book is from that subtitle about the deliberate prolonging of the war for three and a half years. But this is not just a singular thesis that relies on a single point of evidence. There are many different ways in which the war could have, would have, and should have come to a much quicker end than it did. And ultimately, of course, as you do argue with uh, Jim in this very hefty tome, yes, there are many, many ways we can see that the war was deliberately extended. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of some of these facts, perhaps you can explain for the incredulous listener out there, why, why on earth would anyone be interested in extending the gory bloodshed and the sacrifice of millions of human lives for three and a half years of bloody torture and turmoil in the battlefields. Why would anyone be interested in doing that? Simply because they were not interested in winning a war. They were interested in crushing Germany through a war. The the origins of all of this, which are contained in the first book, basically show that a secret group, whom whom we have called the secret elite, a group of very influential politicians and bankers in Britain initially, but then spreading out across the Atlantic into America, made it their cause to wipe Germany from the the nations of the great empires, the the owners of um, the wealth around Africa and Asia, those who were usurping smaller nations, they wanted Germany out of that for the very simple reason that the German economy was slowly but surely, and indeed by about 1910, 1914, relatively quickly pushing the British off the pedestal 
and this could not be allowed to continue. So a short war was not on the books. Yes, a victory would have been uh, in battle, would not never have been enough. There had to be a conclusive and decisive result which meant that Germany was crushed, was taken out. It, it's a bit like the Romans were with Carthage. I think that's the, the perfect example I can think in my mind. So all of this is, that is going on, and you're quite right, James, there are so many aspects in, in which various people who eventually all end up back in the same uh, influential group, various people were using propaganda, using all of the tools of, of banking and commerce and, and munitions in order to destroy Germany. This was, this was the prime aim. Well, then let's start exploring some of the ways in which this was done. And we're going to encounter a character here who I think will, to a lot of the audience, be somewhat a surprising name to feature in this story. It certainly was for me when I first encountered it, because as a Canadian uh, in Japan, uh, my, my only familiarity with Herbert Hoover is the Hoover Dam and his time as president in the, the uh, lead-up to the Great Depression. I had no sense of who he was in his background in World War One. And uh, I, I don't think that many uh, Americans in the audience will have that part of the story in their heads either, because this is not generally taught in the school curriculum these days, I would say. We are talking about Herbert Hoover and his extremely important role for the, the secret elite, as you term it, in America, uh, in, in, in fact, all aspects of this war, but especially in the deliberate extension of this war. Talk to us a little bit about Herbert Hoover and his background. Who was he? Where did he come from? How did he come to be tied in with this secret elite? You're absolutely correct, James. Herbert Hoover was one of the acolytes who served this group, and he has been airbrushed from history. Not entirely, of course, no, but this aspect, his his uh, deceit and all of the ongoings which he took charge of at the start of the First World War and on through the First World War is something which even in Belgium, and Belgium should be the central part of this, has been wiped from history and wiped from history deliberately. Hoover's entire career was built on bombastic lies, on dirty dealings and unconscionable disregard for others. He was a dubious uh, self-styled mining engineer, a very bullying, aggressive manager of other people's investments. He first comes to our notice uh, exploiting Australian mine workers, uh, and their antipathy towards them was such that they brought in many Italian immigrants. He did. He brought in Italian immigrants to cut costs and counter the labour movement in the Australian mines. He was anti-union and opposed to measures such as minimum wage, workers' con compensation, ignoring health and safety safety aspects, and he made millions of dollars for the company he represented, Berwick Mooring of London. He falsified accounts about the value of gold findings to hugely inflate the stock value, and the company flourished. At the end of the Boer War, Hoover provided slave Chinese labour for Alfred Milner and the Transvaal gold mines into which the Rothschilds had great interests. During the war, 
virtually all the mines had to be closed down. And at the end of the war, there was a severe shortage of labor. Our good friend Herbert Hoover was one of those who helped bring over these um, Chinese workers and tricked them into taking up jobs inside the mines in South Africa. He was a confidence trickster, a crook. He was a leading agent with Belgian colleagues who were trying to trick the native Chinese ownership out of the mass massive Kaiping coal field in China in 1901. He worked, and this is important, with Belgian and British bankers, aided by the Royal Navy in its provision of coaling stations. This is very important. Uh, when steam ruled the seas, coal was very important. And having coaling stations all over the globe was entirely critical to an effective Navy. And Hoover was involved in that. Because of that, the British Foreign Office protected him. But then something went off kilter. He and his Belgian associates were tried in the High Court in London in 1905 for the abuse that they had taken of the, um, the Chinese owners of the Kaiping coal fields. He was defended, and this is quite amazing, he was defended by one of the most senior king's councils in Britain, a, a man called Richard Haldane who very soon afterwards was appointed Secretary of State for War in Britain. He and, and others were found guilty of acting in bad faith, and he was told that he, he must uh, resign from the board of the Chinese Engineering Mining Company. He said he would, and he didn't until 1911. He was a shareholder in Rothschild's Rio Tinto Company, um, he formed his own Zinc Corporation and the Burma Corporation. He was a personal friend of Sir Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary in Britain. Now, these are very, very senior politicians. And I'll give you an example which brought a smile to my face and proved just how closely associated they were. In 1914, we have a, a record from, um, actually it's from Hoover's uh, autobiographer, um, that Hoover received a letter from the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in Britain asking if he might borrow Hoover's car for a Sunday afternoon drive. Now, I put it to you, how close do you have to be to someone? Even today, James, if I was asking to borrow your car to go for a jaunt on a Sunday afternoon, would you say yes immediately? Uh, just consider that for a second. Others like Lord Eustace Percy and Lord Crewe, leader of the House of Lords, were deeply involved with him. And if you take all these people together, Alfred Milner, Cecil Rhodes before he died, Natty Rothschild, Richard Holding, Secretary of State for War now, Lord Crewe, Lord Grey, the establishment and the money men were right behind him. That is, again... Incredible, shocking. This is not part of the regular curriculum that we get. And so with no. that as background, realizing that this is not just any ordinary American citizen or businessman, but someone who is clearly tied in with the secret elite, let's move forward to the outbreak of war and how Hoover began to get involved with the repatriation of Americans uh, in August and September of 1914. 
I put it to you, James, that Herbert Hoover was a rabid opportunist who rebranded himself as a humanitarian savior of mankind. When war broke out, there were thousands of Americans stuck in Europe. It was a very American problem. I mean, school teachers with school trips, university groups, people visiting their friends and relatives, absolutely all caught out, not just in Britain, but in France, uh, in Belgium, all across Europe. And they were desperate to get back to the States, quite naturally. An American committee was set up in London in the Savoy Hotel, and it was patronized by Walter Page, who was the ambassador of the United States in London, and uh, a banker called Fred Kent of the Bankers Trust in New York. Now, they very quickly um, gathered money and, and, and looked at how they might be able to organize to get these stranded American people back home. Congress stepped in to help. Congress voted two and a half million pounds in gold to help repatriate American citizens stranded in Europe. At that point in time, Hoover shoved his way into the face of the American ambassador to Britain, Walter Page. His own accounts of what, what happened over that period are barefaced lies. They didn't want to know Hoover. Who was he? The organization had started. Things were going quite well and smoothly. But Hoover refused to be blanked. He contacted associates in Washington, convened a spurious meeting of colleagues, whom he called the Committee of American Residents in London. And they were all mining engineers, by the way. And had himself elected chairman. Then he falsely claimed that the ambassador had agreed to be honorary chairman of his group. On the 16th of August, the USS Tennessee docked in Britain, carrying $2.5 million in gold, and the United States Under Secretary of State, Henry Breckinridge, he, he, he came with the gold and to work with the ambassador. Now, neither, neither Page nor Breckinridge had ever had any dealings at all previously with Herbert Hoover. They didn't want him. One day later, Washington intervened and there was a seismic change. Hoover's residence committee was to take charge and take over and manage the entire relief operation. Why? I mean, neither Page nor Breckenridge had ever worked with them. And suddenly Hoover had undivided management of congressional funds. And by the way, the residence committee, his residence committee, were given a subsidy to cover any of their costs incurred so far. Wow. We find Walter Page, Ambassador Page, writing shortly to President Wilson about Hoover in glowing terms. I think it's important to say that when Wilson had approached Page in 1912 to take up the post in London, Page had to be persuaded. Wilson's personal banker, Cleveland Dodge of the National City Bank of New York, arranged for $25,000 a year to be added to Page's account. Now, Dodge was also a munitions magnate and financial collaborator with J.P. Morgan. Hoover's Washington contacts linked him to the infamous and very shady Colonel Edward Mandel House, who was, of course, Wilson's minder in the White House and his link to Wall Street. 
Thus, Herbert Hoover had connections, really, really important connections, both in Washington and in London. And he was deemed the appropriate person by these powerful people to manage the affairs. It's really, it's really quite amazing. And uh, you draw that out well in the narrative here about how the switch happens when people like Page don't want anything to do with Hoover. And suddenly, overnight, literally, he is the man who's going to be organizing this. And that plays into how this story plays out, uh, not only with the repatriation of Americans, but subsequently, as we know, with the rape of Belgium, as it was portrayed uh, in the Milnerite press in Britain, uh, obviously directed at at America in terms of propaganda value, um, yes. that became a large issue in America. And of course, the, the good people of America wanted to help. They wanted to help these poor Belgians. And how best to do that than to get someone like Hoover to organize their relief. Tell us how that came about. Well, as you say, James, Belgium and Northern France had been overrun in the first few weeks of the war. There was naturally a huge displacement of people but the harvest was in, which was very important. There was want and a lack of food, but there was not starvation. On the other hand, if Germany could be starved of food, the war would barely last until 1915, certainly not past May or June 1915. The Germans didn't have supplies to extend much further than that and very limited supply lines. So if the war was to continue, the warmongers had to find a way of getting food into Europe, and the idea of an American relief agency was a winner. A deal was made and approved. The first approaches to help with food and, and resources and clothing actually came from Belgians themselves in Brussels. A Comité Central was organised largely bankers and associates and lawyers and they, they accrued some funds and sent it to London in order to buy uh, foodstuffs and, 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 and produce. A system was agreed whereby they might be allowed to take such foodstuffs under very strict uh, ordinance to make sure that it went only to the needy, only to the Belgians, only to the supposedly starving. It was to be a humanitarian venture. But but it, it really wasn't. In, in the first place, the Belgians who got involved in this were centrally involved in actually looking after their own people. When they got to London, well, who was in London? The man who could lie at every turn. It was his default position. Herbert Hoover claimed that he had given up all that he had for greater good of humanity. In fact, he took every opportunity to reap massive and personal rewards from the wars in Europe. When it came to the point where the British government and the American authorities needed a tried and trusted and ruthless manager for a project which effectively prolonged the war and feed the mouths of British, French and German fighting men, Hoover was that man. Behind the scenes, even though he was their representative, his companies, his companies traded with the enemy. He bought cyanide from Germany through a Swiss agent. 
and, and the cargo was carried down the Rhine to Rotterdam so that the cash transfer could not be traced to him. He had massive investments in Russia, uh, which he just happened to sell before the Russian Revolution, in Australia, in Burma, and and he claimed to have stood down from, from all of these um, economic management positions in order to, to pursue a career in humanitarianism. Uh, but I'm afraid he didn't. He, he, he placed his brother Theodore in charge of the Burma Corporation and personally wrote the chairman's report. But he was the kind of man who had to be in charge. He, he was a control freak in, in very, very many ways. I know it's a modern term. But the other thing that they had in his armory was that he understood what modern communications actually meant. His association with powerful American newspaper journalists and editors provided him with a front page platform for outrageous claims to set alarm and move the American heart. And that was his aim. The good people of America, they're the ones who actually were ready to help and easily conned. Ben S. Allen of the Associated Press and Philip Patchell of the Tribune came out with headlines like, America must feed Belgium. Never was there a famine emergency so great. Utter lies. <laughs> it beggars belief. But at that point in time, and in the internet age, it may seem very strange. At that point in time, this is what people believed because this was their only access to foreign news. Let's give the audience a sense of the size and scope of this relief effort, because I think it's important to note that it wasn't just that the, they were going cap in hand to the American people asking for them to, uh, to donate their, their spare nickels and dimes. They were also being funded through the back door by governments themselves to the tunes of millions of dollars. How much money was really transferred through Hoover's operation? This is actually one of the cleverest aspects of all, because I understood when I first started my own research uh, that Belgian Relief was funded through um, the goodwill of the people, and there was plenty good goodwill in America. Um, he used the, the, the propaganda of the day and he had the confidence of the political and business elite on both sides of the Atlantic to, to push this through. But charity was not enough. Oh, he, he tried very hard. He played state against state. He, he wrote to state governors and city mayors to promote the benefits of their being the first to, to fund a Chicago ship or a Kansas cargo. And his propaganda sought to overshadow and downplay other organizations because America is, is, is a very caring country and people do give. And there were many different aspects of this where other groups had been formed in order to, to promote charitable work and help and add to the relief of Belgium and other countries. But his propaganda claimed that the American Commission for Relief in Belgium was the only channel by which food could be introduced to Belgium. And he was assisted in this by the head of the American legation in Belgium, Brand Whitlock, who sent a message to President Wilson. And it read, in two weeks, 
The civil population of Belgium will face starvation. He urged immediate action to prov provide food for the hungry ones in those dark days of starvation to come. And they were clever. His New York office targeted the hyphenated interests in America. Catholics, Belgium was mainly a Catholic country. Hoover went to visit the Pope. This actually did present a problem for Irish Americans who hated the treatment of their fellow countrymen by the British Crown. French and Belgian immigrants to America were very giving. Jewish Americans were also very giving, though they had problems about fighting on the side of the Tsar, given the, the horrors of, of the pogroms which had happened in Russia. But stories were tailored to suit. Collections of money and clothing followed. Claims were all urgent, immediate. Belgium was on a cliff edge, they claimed. But the money wasn't enough. The money was never enough. But Hoover and his banking friends and J.P. Morgan were, were on the ball. They knew how to find enough money, let it be borrowed. And the American banking system agreed to lend two and a half million dollars per month to the Commission for Relief in Belgium. This is in 1914 dollars, not inflation adjusted uh, yes, dollars, yes, right? Yes, yes. That's indeed. incredible. It would, be, it would be massively, massively more, James. Yes, that is at that time. Yes. Um, and they agreed, and the governments agreed to, to absorb that debt on the basis that when the war was over, it would be repaid. And of course, provided they won, provided they prolonged sufficiently to cross Germany, it would be Germany who paid. Vast sums of money. The money actually was raised through, well, Mr. J.P. Morgan and the banking system of, of New York. And it really didn't leave America. You have to remember that while that money was on the books, Hoover was using it for shipping, for transportation, buying grain, buying meat, buying products from largely America, but also South America, and organizing this incredibly detailed exodus of necessary foodstuff for survival through one single channel, through one single agency, namely Hoover's Commission for the Relief of Belgium and through the money which was being provided but not charitable money. Though people were left to, to, to think that there was. You know, the, the story going about was this was all pure humanity. Well, it wasn't. Hoover was a Morgan man. His route was exclusively through the Morgan Guarantee Trust Bank. At one stage, the Rockefeller Organization geared itself up to provide supplies to Belgium, but Hoover moved in on them in exactly the same way that he moved in on Fred Kent. Ambassador Page in, in London cabled Rockefeller and told them Hoover and his Commission for Relief in Belgium are the only organization recognized by both belligerents in the war and the only one capable of coordinating support from all parts of the world. Now let's be clear what he's just said there. Both belligerents. The Germans approved of this too. Well, that's interesting. That wasn't highlighted very much in the Brit at all in the British Parliament. But the point wasn't for the British population. The point was made to try and push down Rockefeller in the same way as Fred, 
Fred Kent had been pushed back so that the Hoover and his organization, the great cuckoo, moved in on the nest. And he lied. He sent a telegram to the Rockefeller Foundation claiming that he had received a loan from the Belgian bankers, which was absolutely conditional on his complete control of shipping and transportation because they had offered to take this on. It was a lie. The Belgians had made no condition, but it was part and, and parcel of, of the policy of deception which Hoover used in order to get his own way. You know, behind the motion, the notion that everything was being done to support Belgium, the money held by Morgan and his associates was used to buy foodstuffs across the globe, which meant that he and his associates got profit, profit, and even more profit. This was a gift which kept on giving. And while the talk was of benevolence and private and charitable organization, what was happening had very little to do with charity. It was a screen behind which the great banks were making millions. And this is 100 years ago. Exactly right. Again, $2.5 million per month in 1914 dollars. An incredible amount of money. Um, but it is important to stress and underline that, yes, this was a boondoggle, and a lot of this money did go to the benefit of Hoover and his cronies, but sure. that was not the primary... Per at any rate, that is not why this was such a protected organization by the secret elite. It had a very specific purpose in prolonging the war. You did mention that or allude to that, but let's underline that point. How did the relief for Belgium turn into the relief for German belligerents? Basically speaking, it's no exaggeration to say that the Germans very quickly came to be dependent on the flow of food through Belgium, through the Belgian side of the organization, the Comité National de Secure Alimentation. That, that, that was its long-worded title, the CNAC, the Belgian uh, branch of, of this relief agency. Because Belgian relief was effectively feeding Germany to the point of dependence. I mean, I'll say again, without that food which was coming in through uh, Rotterdam, the Germany would, would have been starved into a submission, which would have meant that the war ended, the armies would have gone home, and in a few years, virtually nothing would have changed. Now, we have, we have very clear proof of this now. Oscar von der Lanken, who was the governor of occupied Germany, sent annual reports to Berlin. And these specifically demonstrated the absolute importance of this source from 1915 onwards. In 1916, he wrote that the continuation of foodstuffs was of major self-interest to the Reich. He admitted that despite... Uh, one of the conditions, which was that Rhodes scholars were supposed to um, offer uh, some kind of um, protection here from any abuses, uh, this simply wasn't happening. Let me try and explain that just a little bit more, James. Inside the agreement that only foodstuff could come through uh, linked into the American relief, which would be, be used and uh, absorbed and and defined inside Belgium through the CSNA. Inside that, 
the, the management of the port of Rotterdam and the overseeing of all these boats which were coming in was, uh, was left in the hands of trusted Rhodes scholars from Oxford, American scholars. Um, unfortunately, none of them could speak Walloon or uh, had very few had French and even fewer had German, but that didn't really matter. This was, well, it did matter, of course, because it meant that they could be told anything and, and it, was, it was no restriction of what was happening in Rotterdam whatsoever. Uh, he, he admitted, the German governor admitted that once we've again successfully, once again, we have successfully rerouted an appreciable quantity of foodstuffs to the Western Front or to Germany, making use of local Belgian products for the occupying forces by means of the clauses which were kept voluntarily elastic or with their unspoken toleration. In other words, the Belgian organisation, the CNSA, were in on the deal. This was collusion, if not collaboration. And of course, it began to leak. The, 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 there were very many spies going about. Messages kept hitting London and, and sometimes got even through to the press and, and beat the censor. And, and these leaks caused Lord Percy considerable embarrassment. Rice imports were supposed to be limited to 5,000 tonnes a month. And yet they discovered that within a three-month period, 34,000 tonnes had been landed and disappeared into Germany. In mid-November 1916, the Belgians confessed to the American legation that 3,000 head of cattle would be transported to, to Germany. They weren't telling uh, the American agency that for no reason whatsoever. They were confessing because they'd been accused of letting the system slip. And, and, and Hoover tried to pass this off as leakage. It was a blinking torrent. And of course, inside all of this, inside all of this were personalities who didn't like each other. There was a struggle for control between the American Relief Agency, which apparently, as far as the Belgians were concerned, were getting too much praise and the American flags were over distribution centres and photographs were being taken. Um, and the, the Belgians under uh, Frankie, that, that was the name of, of the, um, the, the head banker, he wanted his share of, of the glory. It was raw jealousy. And the head of the American legation accused the Belgians of chicanery and double dealing and black treachery so loathsome that words fail them. Well, the reason for that was the stakes were enormous. The Belgian bankers were well aware that Hoover's Commission for Relief in Belgium was creaming off millions and they wanted their share. And most of this, of course, most of this money and Hoover's power stemmed through Morgan Guarantee, the J.P. Morgan uh, establishment in, in New York and on the eastern seaboard. J.P. Morgan was the sole procurer for the British government. When the Belgian government in exile refused to sign off unaudited accounts from Hoover at the end of 19, he threw what we in Scotland would probably call a hissy fit. 
He was outraged. He reminded the government that his organization was answerable to no one, that he was free to dispose of all the charitable gifts given to his organization as he saw fit, um, even though virtually all of it wasn't charitable gift, but that's by the by. Having persuaded the American banks through Morgan to lend the two and a half million a month uh, to be repaid, this was not charitable organization. It was a bank loan, and bank loans have to be repaid. And the money largely stayed in America to be used through American firms to provide the goods, the services, the foodstuffs, the meat, whatever, for Europe. And with all that profit, are you really tempted to ask why the war was prolonged? And, and as complaints grew, Hoover began to tire of this. Perhaps he'd, he'd made enough money. I know not. But he began to tire of the bickering. He began to tire of the fact that one day, no doubt, he would be, he would be caught out. He wanted out and he asked for $2 million from Congress. Again, a point that James makes, $2 million in 19, by now 1916, 17 currency values to cover his administration costs. They refused point blank. Congress was in no need, no mood to give without accountability. It still went on. In 1917, Hoover brokered a deal with the head of the CRB's New York office and Ernest Oppenheimer to develop gold mines in the Rand. He organized the finances chiefly through Morgan and Morgan Guarantee Trust Company of New York. And thus, the Anglo-American Corporation of South Africa was born. And all of this money-making, all, all of this interlinked theft, because that's what it was, all of this was going on behind a screen of charitable giving and poor uh, children who, who, who were uh, desperately needed foodstuffs and support immediately. Well, uh, Jerry, you do raise the possibility or the specter of spies uh, that were leaking some of this information about the real purpose of the Belgian relief campaign out to the, uh, the Allied powers. And of course, on that note, we have to bring up one of the big propaganda coups of World War I, Nurse Edith Cavill. And once again, this story amazingly goes back seemingly, to Hoover's doorstep. What can you tell us about Hoover and his... Well, first of all, what can you tell us about Nurse Edith Cavill, for those who don't know that story, and then how does this relate to Hoover? Okay, James. Hoover was very angry about stories in the British press about the abuses of the relief agencies by the Germans. Excuse me. It put his cosy organization at risk. He complained and lied to the British through the Foreign Office. He complained to the Germans that these stories were getting through and they should not be getting through. You should be doing something about it to stop this kind of propaganda, as he would have put it, lies, he tried to say, getting over to Britain. They were not lies. Mayton Edith Cavell was an English nurse and head of the Birkendale Institute in Brussels. She had been headhunted by the head of the Belgian Red Cross to improve nursing standards and training in Belgium 
1907. She, she gained an immensely impressive reputation. Edith was also a prolific writer to the Times newspaper, to the Nursing Mirror and Midwives Journal. She published a nursing journal in Brussels. She was a patriot and she was also a member of Aspiring centred on the capital. Edith Cavell played a key role in the repatriation of hundreds of stranded British, French and Belgian soldiers, getting them back to England after the early disaster of the Battle of Mons in 1914. Groups got lost, were hidden and were found in woods and so forth. And her work in helping them was known to the War Office and to the Foreign Office in Britain. Now, that's very important. They knew about this spying and they knew about Edith Cavell. She was also a master of miniature script. And many of the men who were repatriated carried secret information sewn into their jackets or pants, about which they knew nothing. And once back in England, they were individually debriefed in London at the War Office, and any messages found were secretly removed. She was very brave. I mean, I, I have a great positive feeling about Edith Cavell. She could have easily gone back to England if she stayed with her nurses and she intended to nurse uh, injured Germans as well, but the Germans wouldn't let her. I can understand that. But she was also involved in the spying. And when the spying was, was discovered, 70 persons involved were arrested. 35 were tried in court. Two were shot. Edith, Edith was one of them. Why? Edith knew of happenings which she could not commit to paper, and she told her family so in letters which are carried back by American diplomatic channels. That's an important point. It means that the American legation in Brussels allowed Edith to use them as a channel to communicate back to Britain. So they knew all about her. Hoover was in Brussels just before Edith was tried, and he had meetings with Governor von der Leyen. He was raging about leaks to the press and the accusations that foodstuffs were going to Germany, and they both knew that was part of the secret agreements, but they had to stop this leak. Edith became, in many ways, the scapegoat. She was shot as a spy, but then... Horror of horrors, the whole event was turned on its head because the British used her death as a propaganda opportunity. Again, geared very much at home, but also to the Americas. Headlines read, innocent English nurse slain by evil Germans. Posters abounded, paintings were done to show how the innocent woman was shot by firing squad by these cowards in the early morning. Hey, presto, volunteers to join the front doubled from 20 to 40,000 a month. When her body was returned to England after the war, it was met by the king and all the trappings of a state funeral. She was a heroine. She was the innocent victim. She was, but she wasn't innocent. In September 2015, Dame Stella Remington, who was the former spy chief in Britain, the director of MI5, said that, yep, yes, uh, Edith was a spy. Thousands of young men 
had been conned up to sign up. The Kaiser was vilified yet again. Lies upon lies and more lies were created to protect Hoover and prolong the war. But she was a spy. And they used that to their own advantage. And Hoover was protected because that was one source from which a great detail was silenced. That's why he's involved in that. Well, again, just another aspect of this story that has been um, lost to history, because, as the old adage goes, history is written by the winners, which was, of course, the title of my recent uh, follow-up podcast episode to the World War I Conspiracy, episode 350 of my podcast, where we delved into the question of the formation of the history of World War I and why a lot of this that we're talking about here today has been occluded not only from our attention, but perhaps most amazingly from the attention of the Belgians, who you think might know something of this history and be interested in it. But as you say, most Belgians probably know little to nothing about Hoover's involvement in all of this. And a very specific reason that we can point to as to why this history is so unknown also has to do with Hoover and his efforts after the war to clean that historical record and remove hundreds of thousands of pertinent documents from Europe itself. Again, this is a story that I did go over in that podcast episode 350, but I'd appreciate if you could help elaborate on that. What on earth happened after the war to so thoroughly uh, expunge a lot of this documented material from the historical record? There are two questions there, James, and let me start with the first one, because it came as a huge surprise to me about how little Belgians know about the most important and major situation in their country's history in the 20th century. Everyone justified, everyone who was against Germany justified the war on what was happening to innocent little Belgium at a conference in in Brussels in, in uh, 2014, I, I, I attended an official EU one and uh, asked the chair, could she, she was a university professor from the uh, Catholic University of Brussels, and, and uh, I asked her, can you tell me what you teach about the German invasion and what happened in the First World War? What would what, what do school children learn? She took a second, she, she paused, and, and then she said, oh, it's, it's not on the curriculum. I, I was flabbergasted. I, I mean, heavens above, if, if I, you know, the history of, of America, if, if, if the Boston Tea Party wasn't, wasn't being taught in Boston schools, would you not think maybe something was wrong somewhere? It's not a particularly good analogy, but it'll serve for the moment. It seems unbelievable. There are two uh, academics. Uh, actually, they, they wrote the, this book from which I have quoted about the um, the German governor. And in their introduction, they, they actually say, to this day, a shadow hangs over the history of Belgium, hangs over the history of Belgian relief. For many, the story of food provision has been raised to a myth created after the war. Wow. I suddenly realized that, yes, this is what we're actually investigating here. So how did it get to this? 
who has colluded to literally cut out this absolutely prime important part of Belgian history from the curriculum? And, and how is all the where's it? How come they don't have evidence of this? The, the, this what's happened to history? Has it been a theft? And, and I think that's maybe what, what I would like to, to argue, that there was a theft. And that theft was the removal of evidence from Europe at the end of the First World War, around the same time as Versailles was the last dots in, in 1918, 1919, were, were being signed. At that same point in time, Hoover was moving in, right across Europe to ensure that vast swathes of evidence, both of the origins of the First World War and of the behaviour of uh, those who, who were feeding the enemy, prolonging the war, was taken out. It was, it hid his complicity from view, and I think it hid his complicity very, very effectively. Hoover was removed from the spotlight. Um, there was no no hint, no no tinge of, of, of wrongdoing, and yet at the same time, there had been an immense wrongdoing, but it served the powers that be, it served the authorities, it served the elites on both sides of the Atlantic to have this evidence taken away. He had ordered, first of all, the removal of all CRB, the Commission for the Relief of Belgium, documents in to New York in 1917. He wanted nothing to be traced back to him late, in later years. But then he was charged from above to remove all incriminating documentation concerning both the outbreak of the war, the trading malpractices in Europe, um, especially the, the what was happening in, in Belgium, and send them to Stanford University in California, which is probably as far away as you could round the world, in order to safeguard history. What a wonderful, a wonderful fake flag that was, to safeguard history by taking it half the way around the world, locking it up and letting nobody see it. He used uh, Professor Ephraim Adams from Stanford to, to do the work. General Pershing in Europe agreed to allow 15 history professors serving there, aided by a thousand hired agents, to go all over the, the, the continent of, of Europe and sift up, to just gather up and clean out all of the evidence they could find. I, I'd been asked before, well, why did the Russians give uh, give all their information? You know, surely people had 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 you know their, their own pride here. This is important stuff. The answer is, starving people will give you anything. And immediately after the war, Europe was in a very very bad place because the British. Uh, who had really failed over, over the years to, um, to ensure that trade did not happen with Europe. Actually, the Admiralty, the Admiralty in London uh, had managed to get their, uh, their act together and had a, a very, very tight grip on trade and trading. 
And Germany was starving. Poland was starving. And Russia had great difficulties. Um, and people literally were happy to give. The, the, German, gov East, the, the German government simply said, yes, just, just take it. It's there. There it is. Take it. And it worked. And you will find, James, on the net, um, photographs of vast, vast quayside loads of, of, of uh, parcel documents all sitting there waiting to go back as, as, as ballast in ships, waiting to go back to the United States. Uh, went to Stanford, went to the, uh, the Hoover Institute, and more or less anyone who challenges uh, what's in there if, if they're professional academics, they're going to find themselves in trouble. They're just not welcome. Um, they said initially the vast quantity of primary evidence would probably take two years to catalogue. And then at the end they said, actually, we think it will take a thousand years. Mm. I put my money on the thousand year side. Unbelievable. But of course, I mean, this is freely open to the public to come in and sift through the archives for themselves, right? Uh, no, James, no, no. Sorry, not free from the public to do any such thing. Very, very tightly guarded. And uh, I know of no uh, primary source from inside there which has in any way criticized what was going on at all. There you go. And of course, since we're still about 900 years away from the uh, full catalog uh, being uh, completed, I suppose there's no way to know what ev what evidence might have been destroyed in the meantime. Absolutely none. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's frightening that, that you, you can do that with history. Many people these days, I think it's important, criticize that, you know, um, the capacity of the net and YouTube and uh, all of the all of the modern contraptions which allow instant feeds and, and news to, 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 to be passed from country to country actually, although it has many distractors, can could could be the one way of stopping such um, I know I know it's open to abuse, I appreciate that, but you couldn't do that now because of the power of the net. It's an interesting point. It's a very important one, and one that uh, at, you make the point uh, in the article with uh, with Jim that I quoted in episode 350 that um, it is uh, it, it's un, un, unimaginable how much that has shaped our perception of the history of the First World War, and it is not even a footnote in the histories <laughs> of that war. Yeah. I have never yeah. seen yeah. this documented or talked about by any historian, any upright, respectable Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, which speaks volumes as to how history is constructed, as we did talk about in our previous conversation. Let me refer back to our previous conversation. For those who don't know, I did release the full, uh, the full conversation uh, on my secondary YouTube channel. Um, and of course, the link to that will be in the show notes in case you did miss that conversation. But a uh, very important subject um, that obviously deals with everything we're talking about today. Speaking of which, we have just spent one hour conversing about Herbert Hoover and his role in prolonging the agony and have really only scraped the surface of this book. This, What we've talked, to, uh, talked about today 
really encompasses maybe half a dozen chapters in this 32-chapter book. There are many, many other aspects to this story, um, but this gives you a window into that. Could you present some details to the, to the listeners who have not yet read this book but are interested as to what other types of ways the agony was prolonged? Um, yes, of course, James, and thank you for that. And should you wish to nominate the book for a Pulitzer Prize, uh, you will have my blessing and Jim's blessing as well. Yeah, um, in, in many ways, we, we, we maybe, maybe we should have split that book into two because it is a, a big tome, but it is a, a book you can read in, you know, in parts. You don't have to read it from cover to cover. We look at the lies that were told and the propaganda that was set up. The role of, of the Christian church in, in some of the most horrendous um, manner in, in, in which young men were extolled to go and, and, and die for a notion of civilization which was crude and ridiculous. We look at a propaganda where some of the greatest uh, English writers of the time threw themselves into this. Uh, and later, some of them, like H.G. Wells, greatly, greatly regretted that. We look at the propaganda and, and, and the involvement, and I really do uh, suggest that readers look at some of the very excellent books written about the Lusitania. And the Lusitania was deliberately sunk in order to galvanize uh, American uh, antipathy towards Germany so that Britain would look good and Germany would look evil. Uh, we look at the sham blockade that went on for years, which allowed the war to continue because all of these goods were actually getting through uh, to Germany without too much difficulty. Yes, there was a nominal uh, boat squad who, who, who were working in the, in the Royal Navy, who were working day and night without the proper resources, but the blockade of Germany was a myth. And... and if, if, even if we if, if we go um, as far as right to the end, the war did not end in 1918. The war did not end on the 11th of the 11th at the 11th hour. It did not. It was an armistice which was uh, signed, and inside that time scale. Germany was squeezed. Starvation be became a matter of, of, of a daily event in many parts of Germany. Uh, child deaths, uh, illnesses, malnutrition flourished. And inside all of that, of course, you could argue with some strength, you created the conditions from which horrible politics emerged. So all of this is, is we look, we're looking at that indeed. I don't know if this is the right time, James, but I, I would like to to conclude with this thought about Herbert Hoover. Hoover was unscrupulous, loyal to his backers who rewarded him to the extent that the money-grabbing mining engineer became the 31st president of the United States. You've said that already. His personal qualities were aggressive and self-serving. He lied at every opportunity to counter accusations and get his way. He manipulated the American press 
to put forward stories which at best might be described as exaggerated, though most were calculated lies. He bullied those who would challenge him, from Fred Kent, who we've mentioned, Rockefeller Foundation, to his Belgian uh, friends. And, and why? Because he was a control freak who wanted to act without scrutiny. He used the media to carry his fake stories about starvation, even to the point of dictating stories from ambassadors and heads of state. It was fake news of the very worst kind, using children and the displaced to generate fear and raise money. The children of America gave willingly and did without, but he manipulated every situation to his advantage. He continued to make a fortune from his companies and holdings, profiting from the war in which he was supposed to be helping unfortunates in Europe, telling lies about his business. He refused to have his accounts questioned by people who eventually would have to pick up the bill. He ran an organisation which had no constitution and was answerable to no one other than himself. He considered himself above the law. He was feeding the enemy, though he denied it point blank, and he held direct talks with the most senior German diplomats and bankers. We only know what he says actually happened behind closed doors. He was cheered to the rafters by the eastern seaboard elite because his actions prolonged the war and made them richer. He removed all evidence of his malpractice and took it halfway around the world to hide it. He was sufficiently brazen at one stage to ask President Wilson to circumvent Congress and give him funds from a slush fund. And his back was covered at all times by the elites on both sides of the Atlantic. Liar, cheat, bully, falls out with his friends and comrades, unethical, self-promoter. These are not the qualities we would expect from a person charged with the high office of President of the United States. Or are they? <laughs> Perhaps those are the very qualities that made him the perfect president for the secret elite, at any rate. I wonder if any of your viewers will, will, will pick up the, what I hope is a clear analogy with our current president. Yes, well, this, again, is such an important part of the history that I'm sure very few people in the audience are aware, aware of from other sources, so I will once again direct them to this book where they can get a lot more detail. Um, again, hundreds of footnotes per chapter, an incredibly important book. I hope people will check it out. Prolonging the Agony, How the Anglo-American Establishment Deliberately Extended World War I by Three and a Half Years by Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor. Jerry, I think we're going to leave this conversation here for today, but I do want to thank you once again for your time and for your work and for bringing this information to light. Uh, thank you very much. I would have to say that working with you, James, is a pleasure, and uh, I am really impressed by the quality of the work you deliver, both to America and the world. It is important. Well, thank you. We'll leave that conversation here today. Thank you for your time. One hundred years ago, the most devastating war the world had ever seen came to an end. In the craters of those battlefields lay the fallen. But why? What was World War I about? What did it mean? For a century, we have been told a partial history of that war. 
But now, we can finally learn the truth about the First World War. This is false history. It's not even acceptable to call it fake news. It's just disgusting. So what these people gained was the foothold for world government. And now the time came to slaughter some part of the sheep. The World War I Conspiracy. Watch the documentary for free at CorbettReport.com slash WWI.